Good morning, church. Scripture reading for today is from Acts chapter 5, verse 27 through 42. And this is the word of the Lord. And when they had brought them, they set them before the council, and the high priest questioned them, saying, We strictly charge you not to teach in this name. Yet here you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching, and you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. But Peter and the apostles answered, We must obey God rather than men. The God of our forefathers raised Jesus, whom you killed by hanging him on a tree. God exalted him at his right hand as leader and savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are witnesses to these things, and so is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey him. When they heard this, they were enraged and wanted to kill them. But a Pharisee in the council named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law held in honor by all the people, stood up and gave orders to put the men outside for a little while. And he said to them, Men of Israel, take care what you are about to do to these men. For before these days Thutis rose up, claiming to be somebody, and a number of men, about 400, joined him. He was killed, and all who followed him were dispersed and came to nothing. After him, Judas the Galilean rose up in the days of the census and drew away some of the people after him. He too perished, and all who followed him were scattered. So in the present case, I tell you, keep away from these men and let them alone, for if this plan or this undertaking is of man, it will fail. But if it is of God, you will not be able to overthrow them. You might even be found opposing God. So they took his advice, and when they had called in the apostles, they beat them. And charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. Then they left the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. And every day in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching that the Christ is Jesus. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our Lord stands forever. Amen. Uh, good morning, everybody. It's good to see all of you. Uh, I want to greet everyone at home as well, if you're tuning in. Uh, all the kids, wave at me. I'm not sure how many are still left. <laughs> I'm sure there are a few of you. Um, after a short break, we're back in the book of Acts today, and I wanted to revisit part of the passage that we looked at last time, but I want us to look at it from a slightly different angle. Uh, here's the outline I'll be following today. Uh, part one, I'm titling it, Gospel Hatred, Why the Gospel is So Offensive. Okay, and then on part two, um, I'm going to title it, The God Who Chooses the Foolish in the World to Shame the Strong. And uh, that second part, I'm going to offer a brief reflection contrasting the wisdom of man and the wisdom of God using, using the example of uh, the well-respected Pharisee named Gamaliel here mentioned. Uh, and uh, I know it's already a lot of time has passed, but I, I do want to share a, uh, a video testimony after the, toward the end of the message, so... Uh, please uh, bear with us today, a little longer service today, okay? Part one, gospel hatred, why the gospel is offensive. Second uh, Corinthians chapter 2, uh, verse 15 and 16 says this, For we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To one, a fragrance from death to death. To the other, a fragrance from life to life. I want you to think about that for a moment. Right? Uh, you know, when I was a younger Christian, uh, this passage was a little bit confusing to me. You know, 
Did this mean like I was given a different fragrant, one that is good and pleasing to some, and then another fragrant that, that was bad and would repel others? Uh, that's not what this is talking about, right? The aroma of Christ is meant to be a consistent aroma because who you serve and what you believe is never supposed to change. You know, when you're committed to serving Jesus as Lord and when you're committed to faithfully living in obedience to his will, right, that is meant to emanate a certain aroma from your life. And to some people, like the thousands of people who had already responded to the apostles' teaching in faith, right, that aroma, that consistent aroma is going to be perceived as a sweet Life-giving aroma, while to others, that same aroma will be perceived as a repulsive, hatred-producing aroma of death, like it was for the Jewish leaders that we read of here in this passage. Right? You all know what sesame oil smells like, right? Most of us would consider it to be a very pleasant and nutty aroma, but as you know, some people are repulsed by it because it reminds them of the smell of skunk. <laughs> it has a skunky smell to it. It's the same thing with kimchi, right? For many of us, it's an aroma that we love, and when we smell it, it just it makes us hungry for rice. <laughs> um, but many people, as you know, are absolutely repulsed by the smell. I believe that's what 2 Corinthians has in, has in view here, right? For some, the message of Christ is a sweet aroma that brings life. But for many others, it's a repulsive message that brings to them death. The Jewish high priest here says to the apostles, look, we strictly charge you not to teach in this name. Right? This teaching is repulsive to us, yet here you have filled Jerusalem with your repulsive teaching, and, and you intend to bring this man's blood upon us? And, and, and their response is basically just a regurgitation of the gospel. They, they give them a simple gospel message asking them to repent of their sins and, and turn to the Lord who offers them forgiveness. But then verse 33, when they heard this gospel presentation this aroma of Christ, they were enraged and wanted to kill them. This, is, this was their response. Right? Why, why such a hateful response? Right? It's like the smell of fresh kimchi is so repulsive to them. Right? And so this morning I wanted to highlight for us just a, a couple of reasons. I mean, there, there are more reasons for sure, but because of time, I just want to only mention two reasons why people respond in this way. Right? They're repulsed by the gospel. The gospel is so offensive. Part one, or uh, first reason rather, the first reason is because the gospel declares that Jesus is Lord. You know, we don't really put much thought into that because it's sort of language that we hear all the time, but <laughs> Jesus is Lord means that he is Lord, he is king. There's no one above him. You know, the apostles say to those here in power, these are the most powerful men in their society, and they're, they're saying, look, we must obey God rather than men, rather than you. They're, they're 
a higher authority above you, they're saying. We must obey him. And just at face value, you know, no, one, no Jewish person would have a problem with this statement, we must obey God, right? Remember that these Jewish leaders were also committed to living a life in obedience to God. But the difference here is that the apostles were claiming that Jesus, right? Jesus was Lord and God. And by them rejecting Jesus, they were rejecting God himself. That was the accusation. And so, you know, when, when we think about Jesus, we know that worshiping Jesus, declaring Jesus as Lord, it, it poses a huge problem for secular atheists, right? But here we also see that this poses a problem for the religious folks, right? This poses a problem for the religious Jew, and it also poses a problem for any, any religious person, religious, you know, Muslims would have an issue with this. Anyone who claims a religion would have a problem with Jesus because Jesus declares that he is Lord. Jesus here, we see also uh, creating a huge problem for those in the ruling class. And we often, you know, we see those in the ruling class, they have their own agenda. And uh, the ruling class would have an issue with Jesus because there's going to be, they foresee conflict. You know, Christianity, I hope you all agree, it creates a new kind of people who will only obey the government as long as the government stays within its lane. As we've seen this past year, once the government commands what God forbids or forbids what God commands, then Christians are not supposed to comply with government. This means that Christians are people who ultimately cannot be controlled by those in power. And this is why the first thing that dictators or socialist governments seek to do is to suppress the voice and influence of Christians. Many of you know this already, but in some European countries, and this was, this became uh, one of the discussion topics with the missionary families who visited last week. Uh, in, in, some of the, in some European countries, homeschooling is illegal. You can't even attempt to homeschool. And it was made clear to us that even if it's allowed in a given country, the rules governing homeschooling makes it virtually impossible for Christian parents to even consider the option. Right? The requirements are just so stringent. You, you, can't, you can't meet them. And so basically, you, you can't homeschool your kids even if you wanted to in many countries. And why do you think governments want to control the education system? It's because those who control the textbooks controls the people. That's a direct quote from Hitler. You think about what our government has become over the past couple decades. Think about what our government schools are trying to teach our children in a very aggressive manner. Let me give you a summary. Creation, they claim, is anti-science and anti-intellectual while evolution theory is irrefutable truth that can never be challenged or questioned. 
A healthy family does not consist of a man and a woman who have committed themselves to each in marriage, but a family is whatever you want it to be. Gender and sexuality are constantly being redefined with no reference to the God who designed us. And so lies are being taught every single day. Parents are being stripped of their parental rights while the state's power continues to grow. And that's a good thing as far as the government is concerned. The church is non-essential and its teaching should not be used to shape or inform public policy. These are the ideas that are being promoted by our government and it's getting worse every single day. Look, on the one hand, people's hateful response to the gospel, people's repulsive reaction to Jesus, it can seem very extreme. But if you take some time to think about it, I believe that those who are repulsed by the gospel are actually the ones who understand its implications better than most people. Because Jesus' lordship is meant to affect everything in life. And Jesus' teachings directly contradict the works that are going on in this world. Virtually everything that people are striving for, it goes against what Jesus stands for. Another reason people are offended by the gospel is because the gospel tells us that we're all guilty before God and that Jesus alone can atone for our sins. And I'm going to skip over some material here. If you want the fuller message, maybe Songs Up will upload the 9 o'clock service. But I need to get to the main point here. Arguably, the most offensive part of the gospel is the part which declares that Jesus alone can save and make us right before God. Think about it. You you know this, right? That that is arguably the most offensive part of the gospel. And it's deeply offensive to many people because that means if, if Jesus alone can save, right? That means their beliefs, right? Their religion cannot be counted as true. Right, this, this kind of Christian belief that we hold to is often called the exclusivity of Christ or the exclusivity of the gospel. Right, if you embrace Christ in the gospel, that means you reject every other religion and you deem them false. And that is so offensive to people. The apostles preached, God exalted Jesus at his right hand as leader and savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And prior to his death, Jesus himself taught, no one can come to me, or no one can come to the Father, rather, except through me. And as you know, this, again, this kind of teaching rubs people the wrong way. And it always rubs people the wrong way, but I, I believe that this is especially true, that this rubs people the wrong way in our postmodern world where the self has become such a powerful idol. Because people with a high view of self normally think, hey, look, I know that I may not be perfect, 
But if I work a little harder and make myself a better person, or if I do some more good and contribute to making this world a better place, or maybe if I listen to some more black and Asian voices and become a little more woke, then why shouldn't I be good enough for heaven? Why shouldn't God accept me? But see, the gospel says no. That's not possible. You, you cannot make yourself good enough for God. Only God can do that. Another problem with our postmodern society is that it makes the claim that there can be no one dominant story or narrative that claims absolute authority over every other story. Okay, if you're not familiar with postmodern language, that is a language. It's a language of narratives, right? The term multiculturalism is used quite often in universities and by people who would consider themselves to be academics. And it sounds really good, multicultural. I mean, he doesn't want multicultural you know, society, but if you really dig deeper to understand what they're talking about, you'll realize that this doctrine of multiculturalism, it clashes directly against the Christian faith. Because multiculturalism means, right, you can break it down, each culture is like a story, it's a narrative, okay? And multiculturalism means that all cultures, all these stories or narratives, essentially are equal in standing, and that no one culture or no one story can claim to be better than any other culture or story. Let me get a little bit controversial here. Not because I want to, but because the world we're living in now has just become so crazy and everything's controversial. The, the secular doctrine of multiculturalism would claim that Western civilization that's been predominantly shaped by Christianity cannot claim to be better than cultures that have been predominantly shaped by Islam or Confucianism or Buddhism or secular atheism. Now let me be clear. The Christian faith does teach that all cultures are fallen, flawed, and tainted by sin. But it does not teach that all cultures are equal. That is false. All cultures are not equal. A culture that establishes itself upon God's moral law is absolutely better than a culture that publicly endorses sinful behavior all day, every day. Always better than a culture or society that disregards God's law, disregards God, unhinges itself from God. Wouldn't you say that a cannibalistic society or culture is a culture that needs far more reform than most others? Or would you still say that all cultures are equally valid or legitimate? If you, if you say that it, it's, they're all equal and legitimate, then you basically bought into multiculturalism as it's taught today. But I tell you that Christianity is in direct conflict with these kinds of postmodern doctrines. Postmodernism says that there can be no one meta-narrative, but Christianity says that it is the main narrative. It is the main story. And it places Jesus at the very center of the story. 
And when people hear this stuff, they cry out, how can you Christians be so arrogant by making such an exclusive claim? You hear this all the time. But the thing is, I hope you know this by now, everyone makes exclusive claims, not just Christians. Even the universalist who believes that all roads lead to the same God, they make exclusive claims because that belief too is an exclusive claim since you're saying that anyone who disagrees with you is wrong. So we should not really be debating over who is being exclusive or not, since everyone is. Rather, we should be debating which exclusive claim, in fact, is true. Part two, the wisdom of man and the wisdom of God. The God who chooses the foolish in the world to shame the strong. In our passage today, we learn of a Pharisee named Gamaliel, who was one of the most well-respected men of his day. Before the Apostle Paul became a Christian, the Apostle learned under this great Gamaliel. And so we can say that Paul received the best Jewish education that was available in his time. Now, I had to do some research here, because I didn't know much about Gamaliel. There are, a few, there are a few sources and there are some Christian traditions that believe Gamaliel, later in his life, became a Christian himself. And I personally don't have the knowledge or expertise to confirm that with 100% certainty, but I would not be surprised if that were true, right? Since Gamaliel, uh, Gamaliel does not show here the same kind of hostility toward the gospel as his colleagues do. And I I don't think that's an insignificant fact because if you rightly understand the gospel, hostility is the natural human response. And if you're sitting here with no hostility toward the gospel in your heart at all, then you can praise God because that is an act of grace upon your life. That is owing to God's grace. Maybe you're not a Christian yet, but There is no hostility. Now, I say, then, that's most likely because God is at work in your heart if there is no hostility. That means he has given you the grace to sit and listen, right, and to weigh if what he's saying is actually true. Right, the Holy Spirit, perhaps, is at work in your heart. So praise the Lord even for that. In regards to Gamaliel, I have no doubt that the Apostle Paul himself would have done his very best to persuade his former teacher to embrace Christ once he himself embraced Christ. I mean, wouldn't you expect that from the great evangelist and missionary, Apostle Paul, that he would reach out to his former teacher and persuade him that Jesus is, in fact, the Messiah? And how else do you think the author Luke here of this book would have known what Gamaliel actually shared behind closed doors before the Sanhedrin? I mean, he must have later learned these details through someone, right? Probably through the Apostle Paul. So I'm thinking, okay, Gamaliel probably converted, and he shared all these details with the Apostle Paul later on, and then the Apostle Paul communicated this back to Luke, and then Luke wrote this down for us so we can know what happened. That would make good sense. And let me be also, also be clear. What, what Gamaliel shared here 
was very good and wise for someone who did not yet know Christ. Okay, there's no arguing against that. From a, from a worldly standpoint, from a, just a pure human perspective, this, this was very wise, sound advice. But one thing I'll argue is that the wisdom of man, okay, and what I, what I believe is that Gamaliel is, is still limited by the wisdom of man. He does not yet know Christ. And so there is a limitation, right? And the wisdom of man here, I believe, we're seeing is primarily committed to political expediency and what would guarantee the most peace and prosperity in this life right now, right? That, that is the primary concern of wisdom of man. And how can you blame people, right, for, for thinking like that if, if really truly they believe that this life here as we know it is really the life that is worth it, not the life that is to come. And I believe this is also true for the two men Gamaliel mentions in his speech. He mentions two guys, uh, Theodos and Judas the Galilean. And I believe that also these men, I mean, they must have good intentions. They were perceiving the government that they were living under as a complete joke and unjust establishment. And they were revolting against the establishment. And we can understand right, their motivation behind that. But see, what differentiates the wisdom of God from the wisdom of man is that the wisdom of God is not mainly about political expediency and achieving prosperity and peace right now in this life. Rather, it's about doing life God's way and being committed to God's means of pursuing justice and peace here on earth, even if it results to a loss of life. I, I thought of, this is not in my notes, but I thought of... Uh, a clip of Francis Chan many years ago, I, I saw he was trying to illustrate the point of how ridiculous it is for us to be fixated upon this life so much when we have eternity ahead of us. And he pulled out a, a long rope, and you could not see the end of this rope. It, it would, you know, uh, extend all the way through the stage and go through the back door. And he's basically saying, look, our lives that last 60, 70, 80, sometimes 90 years are just like this. It's this small part of the rope. And he says, look at what's coming ahead. And he, he's pulling, he's pulling, and you still don't see the end of the rope. And it, it was meant to give us perspective. That's the perspective you should have as believers. Why so fixated on this tiny bit of rope when you have eternity ahead to live? That's the difference between wisdom of God and wisdom of man. If you're someone who's thinking of simply taking Gamaliel's advice and you're essentially planning to adopt the wait and see approach, you know, you want to kind of see how things play out before you make a decision. You're just going to choose a winner in the end. You're going to see who rises up if that's you, I would strongly advise against that kind of way of living because you know what? God never guarantees that false movements will die out quickly. Nor does God ever say that the church will always be riding high and experiencing healthy growth. 
As Christians, we know that false movements will eventually die out, right? And we know as Christians that the church will ultimately last. But if you follow Gamaliel's advice, you'll likely end up doing what's most politically expedient. It's what makes most sense right now. What makes most practical sense to you and to your family right now. And the people of this world will applaud you and call you wise. Wise choice, modern day Gamaliel. But God will consider you arrogant and foolish. You know, one thing that must have really ticked off the Jewish leaders here was that these, these were lowly, uneducated, former fishermen, basically low lives in the Jewish community, now rising up and telling these high officials, these well-educated men, what is right and wrong. Imagine that. Imagine a UVA alum. I'm sorry to pick on UVA, but just seeking advice from a lowly two-year college grad. But see, this is also part of God's wisdom because God loves to humble the proud and he loves to make his power known among those who are considered weak and lowly in the world. This sort of pride and arrogance happens in my home as well. Uh, I hear the older kids sometimes telling the younger kids, you don't tell me what to do. You don't tell me what to do. A younger kid may say, uh, don't say bad words. You don't tell me what to do. Uh, you need to clean your dishes. You don't tell me what to do. See, it doesn't matter how true the words are because the better educated and those with a higher social standing, even in a small home like ours, are naturally repulsed as someone more lowly would dare tell them what to do, what is right and what is wrong. This is human nature and there's also arrogance and foolishness according to God, because again, God loves to use the weak to humble the proud. The way the Apostle Paul later puts it in his letter to the Corinthian church is this, for consider your calling. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many of you were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low, what is despised in the world. Even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. Remember that the Apostle Paul was also once a person who was highly esteemed by the world, but God decided to knock him off his horse, literally, and that's when he began to understand humility and the wisdom of God. God's grace overcame the hostility that Paul once had in his heart. 
See, before Christ broke into his life, he was a gospel hater. But grace made him into a gospel lover and a lover of Christ. And that's why he was able to write things like, but whatever, whatever gain I had in this world, whatever prestige I enjoyed, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus as my Lord. Prior to knowing Christ, he had all the power and prestige in the world that anyone can dream of. After knowing Christ, he became a lowly apostle, dung in the eyes of the world. But he had gained everything through Christ. That's what he believed. That is true wisdom, brothers and sisters. If all I had was Christ, I'd have nothing to gain. All I have is Christ, and I have everything. May that be your confession. I know that some of you may be struggling with hostility toward God. Right? You're listening to what God is saying, but you're actually repulsed by his words. May God show his mercy upon you. Some of you may be like Gamaliel, where God has been at work in your heart, so you don't have that same kind of hostility, and you're willing to listen and actually see who Jesus really is. Praise the Lord. Okay, you should thank God for that grace. That is great. You've got to recognize that as grace. That is not normal. I'll be praying for you. But no matter where you may be, may the Lord be gracious to you. And my prayer is that all of you would one day be able to echo the Apostle Paul's confession of whatever gain I had in this world, I counted all as loss for the sake of Christ. Amen? Amen. Please enjoy this video. Uh, I'm Andrew Claven. I got the worst possible mark in every class in Hebrew school. And my father used to say, they can't flunk you out of being Jewish. But I came very close. I came very close. By the time I was bar mitzvahed, I was so completely estranged from this entire tradition, I didn't want to do it at all. It meant nothing to me. I gave in. I had to. I was forced to be bar mitzvahed and say these things that I didn't believe. So I ad-libbed the, the Hebrew in my bar mitzvah because, like, I really barely learned the portion of the Torah I was supposed to read. I was making up Hebrew words to get through it. I was just anything, anything I could to get through. And at that time, when you had a bar mitzvah, people just piled presents on you. Savings bonds, money, thousands and thousands of dollars worth of jewelry that I got from my bar mitzvah. And I put it all in this big leather box, which I also got from my bar mitzvah. It was the first time I had ever had anything any wealth that was my own. I was 13 years old and I was very excited by it. And so I had this box and I would keep it in a little closet, a little pantry kind of closet in my room. And every now and again, I'd take it out and just kind of stare at this. I never wore a lot of jewelry, but I would just stare at this wealth that I had accumulated. But over the course of, let's call it the next six months, the joy of this wealth started to seep out of me. I began to feel that I had done a truly hypocritical thing. These are ill-gotten gains. I was bought off, you know. I, I let someone give me money to say what I did not believe. I kind of naturally had a sense that God was there, 
but I hated the hypocrisy. I hated the fact that I'd been bullied into something. I hated the fact that I'd been bought off. And it started to dawn on me that it must have been very important to me that I had lied about God specifically. And one night, I waited till the entire house had gone to bed. And I took out this box full of thousands of dollars worth of jewelry. And I crept outside and I stuffed it in the garbage because I felt so bad about it. And I remember stuffing, I can feel, even whenever I talk about it, I can feel the broken eggshells and the coffee grounds on my arm because I shoved it down deep because I was afraid somebody would find it before they would throw the garbage away. And in the morning, the garbage men came and they took the garbage and this jewelry and they threw it away. And that was meant to be the end of my religious life. I loved stories. I wanted to be a writer for as long as I can remember. I love tough guy stories because I didn't because I didn't get along with my father. I needed a male role model and I turned to stories like by Ernest Hemingway and the tough guy detective stories of Raymond Chandler and uh, the Maltese Falcon by uh, uh, Dashiell Hammett, you know, these tough uh, detectives. And I, I, I thought these are the kinds of men I want to be like. This is the kind of, these are the guys who walk in, the, in a corrupt world, but they carry this kind of integrity inside themselves. As I studied literature, I realized that Jesus was at the center of all of Western literature. I, I, should, I should find out about this. I should find out about it. I went in my, into my bedroom and I closed the door and I started to read the gospel according to St. Luke. One of the funny things about the gospel is that people have this concept of gentle Jesus, meek and mild. If you can go into the gospel and find a place where gentle Jesus, meek and mild exists, I will pay to see it because Jesus is a hard man. He walks in to these death, you know, these deadly situations. Even when they're threatening him with death, he just says what he has to say. And that to me, especially in this world of lies, that to me is so important, such a great model for any man. And my father uh, liked to sabotage anything that I did. So like if, if he heard me writing, if he heard me typing, he would always break in on me and try to mess up my concentration. And so while I'm reading this, he walked in without knocking. He threw open the door and he caught me reading the gospel according to St. Luke. Now you have to think about this for a minute, right? I'm 15 years old. He could have walked in on me with a girl in the bed. I was doing that. But he walked in on me reading the gospel according to St. Luke and he was furious. I mean, the rage came out of him in little bits because he was trying not to let it out, but it kept bubbling up out of him like hot tar and he couldn't stop it. He was cursing at me. He was using, you know, foul language and, and he would just keep, he would keep bursting out. And we went in to have dinner and we'd sit down and it kept coming out and it kept coming out. And I'm trying to explain to him, I'm not reading it for religious purposes. I'm not reading this for religious purposes. I'm reading it for literary purposes. I just wanted to know what all these guys were writing about. And he pointed his finger at my nose and he said, if you ever convert, I will disown you. I'll disown you. There was only one ambition that I had. I wanted to be a novelist. That was what I wanted. I applied to the University of California at Berkeley because it was so far away from my New York home. And I went in to the first of my terrible, terrible depressions. I called them the, the bola because they were like that throwing thing. It would just kind of appear out of nowhere and wrap itself around my throat and choke me with this sorrow. And I was torn up. I was so broken and crazy inside that I didn't 
understand how to communicate with other people, how to write stories. I knew I had a talent for writing stories, but I couldn't write stories that people liked because I, my mind was so messed up and I was so full of rage and, and twistedness and, and uh, you know, it, it didn't appear. I wasn't like a, a crazy person. You looked at me and you would have thought, well, he seems like a really, you know, all put together guy, but I was not. I was really broken inside. And I didn't know I was going insane. I didn't realize I was going mad because I, I had that romance of the intellectual, and intellectual is miserable, and intellectual faces things. He, he looks, he tells the truth, he looks life in the eye, and life is meaningless, and life is death, and, and because he sees these things, he's a man of sorrow. And so I just thought I was a typical intellectual, you know, it's uh, like that song, uh, it's, it's hip to be miserable when you're young and intellectual, that's what I thought I was. But I was in so much pain, I did begin crying out to God in this kind of sick, superstitious way. I mean, I remember, you know, trying all these kind of spiritual experiments to try and get clear. I published a novel when I was about 26, and the book didn't sell, I couldn't publish it, and it just died. It was such an experience of grief, I didn't even feel the grief, and I just started to unravel. And at the same time, my wife became pregnant. I'm trying to write and I'm picking up a little bit of money, but we're slowly going broke and I'm slowly going crazy. I'm just going crazy. My books became unreadable. My writing, I'd always prided myself on this clean, clear American prose, you know, and suddenly I was writing these convoluted sentences that nobody could understand. I not only couldn't uh, sell my books anymore, I couldn't even get an agent. I couldn't do anything. I was just frozen. I was so depressed. I was in my bedroom and my wife was outside. Sometimes she would sleep on the couch so I could work in the bedroom because that's where my desk was. My little baby daughter was in her nursery. I was drinking, not heavily, but I was drinking a, a scotch and I was smoking cigarettes and I was thinking about killing myself. I had had suicidal thoughts before, but this was, this was different. This was the real deal. I was sitting there thinking, I don't know how to live. I, I do not know how to live. And there was a radio playing a baseball game, a Mets game. And um, it was just playing in the background. I wasn't listening to it. I was just sitting, I was, I was thinking about throwing myself off the roof because we lived in a, I don't know, an eight, 10 story building. And I was just thinking I could just walk up there and everybody would be happier. My wife would be better off. My daughter would be better off. I don't know how to live. In the baseball game, the Mets had a player that I just loved named Gary Carter. And Gary Carter was a devout Christian and whenever they would interview him after a game, you know, how did it feel when you hit that home run? He would say, oh, praise Jesus, you know, Jesus, I, I'm so happy I hit that home run. And I used to think like, oh, Gary, stop, you know, it just went right up my spine. It was like, it was like somebody had dropped a worm down my back, you know, Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. And after the game, I'm sitting there considering suicide, drink in one hand, a cigarette in the other. And after the game, Carter won the game by beating out a single to first base. In other words, he hit a ground ball and he ran so fast that the throw was late and he got to first base before the throw, which was amazing because Carter's knees were gone. He was a catcher and he spent all this time squatting. He had terrible knees. So after the game, the interviewer came up to Tim and said, how could you run so fast when your knees are so bad? And if Carter in that moment had said, Jesus, 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 I wouldn't have heard it. I, w I was no way ready for that. I was. I, God, I had pushed God completely out of my life. But he didn't. What he said was, sometimes you just have to play in pain. I remember thinking, I heard that, and I remember thinking, 
Well, I can do that. I'm a tough guy. I'm, I've always been a tough guy. I can, I can play in pain. And that was the answer. How do you live? Sometimes you got to play in pain. I think about that a lot these days and that this Christian ball player who's clearly given these words by God to speak to me, that he didn't use God's name, that I wouldn't have heard God's name, that God, that the king of the universe <laughs> put himself out of the picture to reach me. Uh, that's, you know, a kind of humility that you don't see in a lot of uh, people. Anyway, that was the last time I ever thought of suicide. I was reading a book, a, a sea adventure story, great book. I love Patrick O'Brien, great author. At the end of this chapter, it said, uh, his name was Matron. It said, Matron said a quick prayer and fell asleep. And I thought, well, if he can say a prayer, because he was a very intellectual character, I really loved him. I, it was a series of books, and I just really identified with this character. I thought, if he can say a prayer, I can say a prayer. Here I was, my career was going great. I had married this woman I just adored. I had two children I just adored. I was so happy that I had come through this period of, of pain and uh, emotional breakdown and had changed everything in my life. So I said a three-word prayer. I said, thank you, God, and I went to sleep. The next morning I woke up and everything had changed. I was suddenly more alive. I suddenly saw everything more clearly. I had been trying to see things clearly since I was a little boy. I remember as a child thinking, I can't get past my daydreams. I can't get past my own thoughts. And suddenly, there it was. There it was. Everything was beautiful. Everything, my wife, I could see my wife's face. I could see the coffee in the cup. I went out into London, one of the most beautiful cities on earth, and I could see the city, and it was all clear. And I realized it was that prayer. It was those three words, three-word prayer. And it was kind of a an intellectual experiment for me, but for God, it was the lifeline that he needed. It was the connection he was looking for. What I had been looking for in my life as a, as a writer, as an artist, I had been looking to be directly connected to life. You can't be directly connected to life until you're connected to God, because God is the source of life. Not just the source of life from the beginning, from creation, but the source of life right now, right this minute. And you can't know God, he's just too big for the mind, unless you know him through Christ, who is a man like you. I was connected to the world. I had life in abundance, that great promise, that great promise. I want you to live, and I want you to live abundantly. You know, my father was afraid that by embracing Christ, I would be leaving Judaism behind. But weirdly, I never really felt connected to my Judaism until I found Jesus. When I when I found Jesus, that was the first time I started to think, oh, oh, that's what all that stuff in the Bible meant. That's why, you know, there were those traditions. That's why there, was, there were those passages that never meant anything to me before. I always had a connection with my cultural Judaism. I always knew I was a Jew, was happy and at peace with that. But I never understood the religious aspects of it until Jesus came into my life. It's absolutely true. Until I was baptized, I don't think I was a Jew. And it has been just a remarkable, remarkable adventure. I, I don't even know uh, how to communicate the, the way all of life makes sense now, the way, it, it, you know what it is? It's the difference between sailing in absolute darkness on a stormy sea
and sailing in darkness on a stormy sea, but you can see the North Star so you know where you're going. And suddenly the storm doesn't bother you. Suddenly the darkness doesn't bother you because you know exactly where you're headed and you've got that star to lead you. And uh, I think that's my testimony, guys. Uh, if you're here today and you want Christ to give you a new, new purpose, a new identity, a new direction in life, then please uh, share that desire either with me or one of our pastors, and we'd be happy to spend some time with you, pray, pray with you, offer you additional resources. Okay, Let's pray together. <clears throat> uh, dear Father, we're thankful that it is your grace that overcomes our ignorance and our resistance to your truth. And we thank you that there is salvation offered to us by grace and through faith in Jesus Christ. Lord, through our time in the book of Acts, we've been studying how your Holy Spirit moved in history to empower your disciples so that many would come to faith. And knowing that you are a God who is the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow, we ask that you would move among us, you would empower us, so that many would come to faith in our time and be able to testify of your life-changing grace. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.